Good morning, everybody. So today we are going to be talking about embracing changing your mind when you're confronted with bias. So changing your mind can be something that is criticized or critiqued as being wishy-washy or easily swayed. It gets kind of a bad rep. Um, the ideal can be painted as standing your ground, standing firm in your beliefs, things like that. And I do think that there are things to stand firm on, but not when certainty gets in the way of yeah. loving others and loving ourselves. Yeah. When we come up against real people in their real circumstances with their real pain, do we cling to belief and ideology, or do we allow ourselves to change and be shaped by what we encounter? So we've talked about um, in preparation for this Sunday that Jesus is a great teacher yes. on changing your mind. Yep. And the word that gets used um, that he talks about is often uh, repent or repentance. And just as a side note, in a couple weeks, we are going to start talking about reclaiming and re-understanding religious terminology that maybe for you has lost its meaning. So we sent out a little survey that you can um, fill out if there's a particular phrase or term that for you has lost meaning. Um, we've already gotten some responses and that's been super helpful. So we'll make sure, that's linked in Discord um, already, but we'll make sure people have that if you'd like to contribute your own word or phrase. But this word repent, people can mean a lot of different things when they use it. And most of them may feel pretty negative. But repenting is turning in a new direction, doing a 180, changing your mind. Repenting isn't a guilt trip or airing all your sins or dwelling on some negative self-talk. It can be really weaponized when shame or judgment is yep. the center of repentance. Repent or die. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but this is actually a positive process and a really necessary one, and that's why we want to talk about this idea of changing your mind today that the actual core of repenting is lovingly coming to a new belief. That when you're confronted with something that um, reveals your own bias, you're able to move toward being more loving and more liberating. Jesus often uses words like repent and believe or repent for the kingdom of God is near. And this isn't a command to feel really insignificant and horrible about everything that you've done. It's an invitation to take an honest look at your life. Mm. It's an invitation to join into the liberation and love that's already taking place. Mm. This vision of all things being made well, that we get to hold that while we accept that invitation. And this might require you to change your behaviors and change your way of thinking, to turn toward a new direction of love instead of one of hate. So as we're talking about changing your mind this morning, that involves repenting, turning in a new direction, Vince, I'm wondering for you if a story comes to mind here. Definitely, I could I could tell a lot. I think um, because I I I think I've shared before that perfectionism is definitely something that I would um, like say that I struggle with, um, and I, I believe that to be true. And so uh, part of the way my perfectionism plays out is I I think that I um, I feel like um, I need to talk about myself and what I believe or the opinions that I hold today as if I've held them since the beginning of time, <laughs> and uh, which is like wild, right? Like, of course, that's not the case. Yeah. Like, I think, you know, if if uh, if given the choice, like if anybody was given the choice, like, would you like to be the same person you were ten years ago? 
uh, I think you would want to say, no, of course not. I want to have grown and changed and, and, and been formed for the better. But I try to tell the story as though, oh, I never had to do those things. Um, <laughs> You've been unchanging I've been unwavering. Yes, I, I've, uh, I'm, since the beginning of time, I have always <laughs> held these, uh, these beliefs. And so let me talk about them as if I'm quite the expert. Um, so, uh, I mean, one memorable um, experience that highlights this for me is... Um, You'll have to take yourself back to early November, the year 2016. Do you guys remember hmm. early November, the year 2016? The Cubs had just won the World Series. <laughs> it was a beautiful time. It was a beautiful time. And then shortly after the Cubs won the World Series, uh, Donald Trump became president. And I was convinced in the lead up to this, like I had sort of, you know, I'm just as uh, boring as the next person listening to like political podcasts in the lead up to the elections. And I was convinced that there was no way that Donald Trump could win the presidency. I was, I, I, I assured everybody around me who was worried. Um, I just, you know, it was, it, no, there's, there's just no way. Like, look, I've been listening and I, you know, like somebody laid it out this way and it's pretty clear there's no way he can win. The trouble was he won. Mm -hmm. uh, and as I reflected about that afterward, I realized something about all of the people that I had been um, going to and trying to assure that they didn't have to worry. They were all either women or people of color. And that was revealing to mm -hmm. me about a bias that I had. Uh, it confronted me with you know, this pretty clear idea that like, Something about my experience as a white middle-class guy um, gave me a sort of bias towards optimism. Surely this couldn't happen. Uh, that uh, others could uh, see more clearly than me because they were more used to being let down by America. And I couldn't see that. And I remember feeling a mix of things in the aftermath of this. Like I felt embarrassed, I wanted to avoid talking with all of those people that I'd assured because I didn't really want to like, I didn't want to show my face, you know, because I had been like the one saying like, the sky is not falling, the sky is not falling. And I felt defensive, like I, you know, like, well, let me, let me, you know, go back and double back and re-talk about all of those things that I said, because really, actually, what I was saying is still true, it's just that he won, Ooh. and that doesn't work, right, because I had nothing to stand on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was super difficult. I, I had to change my mind. I had to recognize that I had a biased view of reality because of my lenses, and it, life confronted me with it. And I, you know, it took apologizing to some friends for downplaying their fears that were more legitimate, that they saw more clearly than I did. And, uh, and, and it took like admitting that I, I, don't, I don't see perfectly. I, I have not, um, I've not had all the right thoughts since the beginning of time. Yeah. Yeah, I think as you're telling the story, um, I'm wondering if people have had a similar process of changing your mind that often it's getting a better vantage point, hmm. that turning in a new direction involves seeing more than what you were limited in beforehand. Yeah. Um, I have a related example here yeah. too. Um, so for me, the story that comes up a few years ago at the seminary that I was at, we were having a meeting with students and faculty about some tension that was going on in the denomination and at the school. And this was a really emotionally charged meeting. It was pretty uncomfortable. 
And it was one of the few times that I actually spoke up a bit more clearly in that setting and really um, expressed fully my thoughts and beliefs around what was taking place. And a lot of other people did that as well, particularly a lot of white women. And after this meeting, one of my peers wrote an article on white women's tears and how much space they take up. And she talked about how excluded and limited the students and faculty of color in that room felt um, because of how much emotional space women, particularly white women, were using up in the room. I see, I see. Mm. Um, and initially, when I read that article, my initial response was this shame spiral of feeling really embarrassed and really ashamed of not being more conscious of that, not being more aware. Then I felt angry. Mm. Um, truthfully, I felt angry that the article had been written and that it had been broadcasted in this way. There was some anger there, um, that it was a private meeting and it felt like this was breaking confidentiality. Mm. All these things that I justified, similar to your process of yeah. trying to walk back and justify things. And all of these criticisms and frustrations came up for me. Mm. But when I got done with being mad at myself and mad at her, I took an honest look at what had really taken place, and I decided that moving forward, I needed to be more intentional about who was being included and who was being bulldozed over. Mm. Because when you're one of the included ones, one of the listened to ones, it can be hard to see beyond that, yeah. to say this is not everyone else's experience. So it's given me pause anytime that I'm tempted to make an assumption about how someone else is feeling and what they're experiencing in the room. So for me, the changing my mind was taking my limited view and being able to expand beyond that. It's been a really decentering practice for yeah, me. Yeah, it strikes me that in in both these cases, or I can also think about, um, you know, these are these are both us uh, confronting bias that have to do with our lenses as like our social location, our mm -hmm. race in the world. Um, but there's also like bias that has to do with like interpersonal interactions. Like I remember the first time I received feedback from a supervising teacher when I was a teacher and how in, like immediately my walls were up because I was like, no, you can't know more than me. And you telling me like the, the explaining like uh, very clearly that there was a bias, a thing that I was not seeing in my teaching mm -hmm. of this classroom. I wanted to run from the hills, you know, from that, that reality. But slowly, you know, recognizing as I sat with the feedback that it was true. So, you know, I wonder what are the examples that are coming up for everybody um, in, in, our, in our community when we think about being confronted with a bias, being confronted with some situation where you realize now, removed from it, that changing your mind was a good thing. But in the moment, like, you know, we're not telling our best stories right here. Like, this is, the, you're, we're, we're talking about shame, we're talking about embarrassment, we're talking about defensiveness. And, um, and it just strikes me that we need what you were talking about before in this place is, uh, we need somebody who can um, teach us and guide us. We need, we need like models for overcoming or changing our minds, repentance, mm -hmm that don't carry with them extra layers of shame and embarrassment and disappointment because we already kind of feel that when you recognize you need to change your mind. Yeah, we don't need somebody to tell us you should feel right, shame right now. Right, right. There's, there's got to be something better here. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I, uh, I think that, I think that um, looking, to, looking to the um, 
the, the teacher of Jesus as, uh, as, as one who's certainly been taken out of context with that word repentance, mm-hmm. but who, uh, who guides us into uh, a way to think about changing our minds that is life-giving, even as it goes through shame first, mm-hmm. uh, is really powerful. But I wonder if we can shift the conversation. Yeah. Um, we want to talk today for the most of our uh, space today, uh, not just about Jesus as a teacher in this regard, but we wonder what it would mean to talk about Jesus as a guide in this regard. Um, I think that this will feel really applicable to some of our situations. Another way that many have drawn on Jesus uh, for help in the challenging uh, reality of sometimes we have to embrace that our, our minds need to be changed, uh, our biases need to be confronted. Uh, another way that people have drawn on is one particular instance that's recorded in two of the Gospels in two different ways, and we'll visit both ways before we're done here. Um, but uh, just, to, just to say this before we look at the scripture, um, it might feel scandalous to even suggest that, I wonder if you caught just how scandalous it is for me to say, like, Jesus is a model for us for changing our minds. Like, wait, Jesus needed to change his mind? Does that feel scandalous? I wonder if that feels scandalous to anybody, like, when you think about that, like, hold on. Hold on. Wasn't Jesus, like Vince was talking about before, perfect from the beginning of time? Jesus never had to change his mind. Jesus never had to have a bias confronted. Don't, don't Christians believe like Jesus is the image of God? What exactly are we suggesting here, I think? Uh, so I, I want us to sit, if that, if that discomfort or, like, comes up in you, I want you to like, let that sit for a bit because we're not gonna, we're not gonna leave that stone unturned. Um, but I want us to kind of fully be ready for um, something new that we might discover this morning, if you've heard, uh, if you've heard, uh, if you've heard Jesus teach about before, <laughs> taught about before. All right, so let's read from one of the gospel references and see um, what we mean here. Um, and I'll mention that again, if you want to add anything in the chat, feel free to. Uh, we would love to, before we're done here, try to look at that and see if there's anything that we feel comfortable addressing in the moment. All right, so I'm going to put up Matthew chapter six, uh, chapter 15, excuse me, on the screen. It says, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. It's quite a passage. Yeah, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. I mean, like, I think this is top three most uncomfortable stories in the gospel for me. Top three, I yeah. want to say. Um, maybe, like, in the entire Bible. And I think the reason is because Jesus comes off looking prejudiced, right? Like, Jesus uses a racial slur. Jesus referred to a foreigner as a dog. What do we do with that, right? We have to account for that somehow. This uh, top three most uncomfortable story for me in, in the Bible, I think. I think this really threatens my perception of who Jesus is and, like, the perception that this church is founded on. Mm-hmm. You know, we were just talking about, like, Jesus is, like, a. we start every service saying, like, our experience of Jesus 
is that we're not drawing lines and saying, here's the outsiders, the dogs, and here's all the people who are in, right? So what do we do with this? Um, how Jesus' behavior is usually accounted for um, when this scripture has been interpreted by people over the years uh, is that Jesus is testing the woman. Mm -hmm. Jesus is embodying a bias that Jesus doesn't actually hold to embolden her to step up for herself. And then she does, and that's uh, what Jesus was really hoping for. And that's fair, I think. I think that that's a, that's a fair way to read this because it is very thorny to get around this idea that Jesus it uses a racial slur. Uh, there are real challenges to seeing something morally problematic from the one that we are calling Lord, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's, that's a problem. So that suggestion that Jesus is testing the woman, I think does, uh, is a way to get around this. And, so, and I, I think that that's a fair read that many have felt helped by to get around that thorniness. But there are some other possible reads and I, I want to bring those in today because I think they're, they're useful for our conversation around changing our mind. Um, another possible way to account for Jesus' behavior is uh, we read this, that Jesus, like every other person in human history, was situated in a specific culture. So Jesus was a part of the first century common era Judaism, which just like every other culture in the world, just like my culture, just like your culture, just like every one of your cultures, has a limited perspective and has biases. Uh, the biases of a first century Jew are Jesus's. That's his case. And this read of Matthew 15 calls this an example of Jesus expressing one of those biases. Historically, it's verifiable that a Jew in the first century common era would call a foreigner a dog. Uh, that's verifiable. There are, there are like accounts of these sorts of things happening. Now, accepting that Jesus expressed a bias, again, might make a lot of us feel really uncomfortable. Like we're cool with Jesus being human, but not that human, right? <laughs> um, I want to acknowledge that. I want to acknowledge that if you feel discomfort about that, like I feel discomfort about that too. I like the first time I think I ever encountered this idea of like, what if we accept that? I felt really off by that. But I wonder, and this is where this, this interpretation has pulled me a bit and encouraged me to just keep reading further. I wonder if our discomfort is because our moral imagination as Americans in the 21st century, our culture is fixated on guilt, innocence. Are you guilty or are you innocent? Are you right mm -hmm. or are you wrong? Are you going to jail or is the judge letting you go? We are obsessed with guilt, innocence. And so we think that if we accept that Jesus expressed a bias, we have to call Jesus guilty. We have to call him bad. I wonder if we don't have to do that, though. What if it doesn't belittle Jesus or call Jesus bad at all if he is reflecting his culture, which is something every person does, right? Mm -hmm. Which is something that I did in my story about like, trying to, to tell people not to worry when everybody was afraid that Donald Trump would be elected president. Doesn't make me a bad person that I did that. It makes me a limited person that I did that. And this is where I think Matthew 15 has a really beautiful opportunity because we see Jesus' faithfulness to God and Jesus' reflection of the image of God in an even more profound way. Mm. How? What does Jesus do after his bias is confronted? He changes his mind. Mm -hmm. 
He's not stuck in defensiveness. He's not stuck in embarrassment. He doesn't have to go down the road of shame and, and oh, I better uh, make my case better, or well, uh, you know, and this is where I think there might be challenges to that, that interpretation that Jesus is testing the woman, because maybe that would be, I don't know, that would kind of feel arrogant, right? And with this idea, it's like, well, Jesus expresses a bias because he's a first century person, but what is the great picture of God that Jesus shows us? It is that Jesus is, is the image of God, not by virtue of being without need for change, but by virtue of being humble. Jesus models faithfulness to the image of God wherever he sees it. If Jesus sees the image of God in a person who's meant to be his cultural enemy, Jesus is willing to be confronted. Jesus is even willing to be confronted, not just by a cultural outsider to him, but by a woman in a patriarchal mm-hmm. setting. Jesus accepts that, wow, I am a limited person with a, with a limited view, and what I model when it comes to showing people the picture of the invisible God is that I don't run from this. I am able to, I'm able to, 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 uh, to show that divinity and humanity meet when we do not run from being, uh, having our biases confronted, but we are willing to change our mind. And I just I think like, isn't this what we all long for in leaders? Mm-hmm. Like I am, I, I think the reason, you know, I begin with a story of, of, of feeling so, I don't know, just begin with the story around Donald Trump's presidency. It's like, aren't we tired of leaders who hide their flaws and act as if they don't have any? It, like, I, I'm mystified by the, even the idea that, like, in, in politics, it's, uh, it's thrown around as a, as a, uh, a like, a put-down to say that somebody's a flip-flopper, as if they haven't held since the beginning of time the opinions they hold now. Like, isn't it a good thing to grow, to be a different person than you were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? I think healthy people change. Mm-hmm. And if we are embracing this idea that Jesus does show us truly what it means to be human, flaws and all, and yet Jesus shows us what a human fully faithful to the divine image everywhere, fully faithful to God, shows us what to do when that humanity is pressed up against. And that, I think, is that's something I can truly learn from. Mm-hmm. Jesus is a guide, not just Jesus as a teacher. Yeah, it gives you more to stand on when you see this process unfolding instead of just teaching from a distance, when you actually see the one that you're looking toward as teacher and guide and model going through the very human cycle that this is Mm -hmm. of having something that you think you've figured out, realizing that you have a bias there and being able to change gracefully Mm -hmm. to have a God that walks you through that Mm -hmm. instead of only the image of perfection in that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is a really powerful thing. It's, a, it's truly a, a loaded passage. And so this is one way that scholars have tried to make sense of a passage that when you read, you feel uncomfortable, right? We can't read that and not feel uncomfortable. We've got to get around the thorniness somehow of here's an example where we see, at least on the surface, Jesus using a racial slur. This read really moves me in terms of because it is... It, you know, it, what it does is it dials down my own sense of being scandalized by my own mistakes and my own embarrassment and my own shame because I see modeled for me, here is someone that didn't have to go through that, all that rigmarole but was able to say, I am, a, I am a settled enough in the fact that God loves me and that God has a plan for me 
that I can move forward into this and I can accept having a bias confronted. I don't need to bluster and defend and do all of the worst sort of like ego trips to try to get out of that. I can receive that and I can receive that healthily. That to me is really inspiring. Yeah. And I think that whether you've got the traditional read on this that tries to explain things away or saying that Jesus is testing the woman's faith here or even teaching the disciples through the interaction, um, whether you have that or whether you have this view here that's really centering on her leading the way, Mm -hmm. her being teacher, this Mm -hmm. role reversal, Mm -hmm. and Jesus changing. There's another angle that I'd like to toss in here, too. Yeah, we've got one more. Just when you thought that was uncomfortable, (laughs) we've got one more for you. But wait, there's more. Um, (laughs) So this was a read that I encountered um, through a book called Back to the Well that talks about Jesus' encounters with women um, throughout the Gospels. And the... Um, author here highlights that some scholars actually believe that the woman that Jesus encountered was upper class Hmm. and well-educated. And we mentioned that this story is told in a couple different contexts here. And stay with me, because I know this kind of gets the weeds of stuff, but it's really exciting to me. Hmm. Um, But this story, when it's told in the book of Mark, so in a different gospel, she's not described as a Canaanite woman. She's actually described as Greek, or Hellenist would be the word there, Syrophoenician. So there's different origins here. Um, and so this calling her Greek actually indicated a higher class. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets into the nitty-gritty, but at the end, when there's the child is laying on a couch at home and is healed from a distance, uh, the word that's used there is not the usual term, but a term for a nicer piece of furniture. Um, Tyre was a wealthy coastal city that profited from extensive trade. So I think it's easy for us when we see women, particularly, or outsiders in some way, encountering with Jesus, we assume a lot about their identity and that they must have lower amounts of power and privilege and access to resources. But this seems to suggest that she actually could be someone who had power and resources and privilege. So how does that change and, yeah. our read of the of the the passage? Yeah, and so why does this matter? Yeah, yeah. Um, it changes the dynamics of their interaction because now Jesus is encountering someone with more privilege, hmm. and the bias that he's coming up against may be one of resentment, hmm. not just othering. Hmm. So the the pattern of encountering bias and changing your mind still occurs, and he does change because of her words. But if the woman is someone of higher position, it actually models for us a different type of changing our minds. It involves humanizing everyone in the story, humanizing people we'd write off as powerful or um, maybe taking up resources that could have been used in a different way. There's a quote I'll read from this book. Um, The author says, Jesus's words to the woman may reflect a bitterness grounded in real relationships. And would have been heard as follows. First, let the poor people in the Jewish rural areas be satisfied, for it is not good to take poor people's food and throw it to the rich Gentiles in the city. Jesus could have been actually drawing on a common saying here that condemned this exploitative situation. And the woman knew the walls of of prejudice that she was up against here, but she takes her position of power She says, I'll take the leftovers. I'll receive whatever is falling on the ground here. 
And so her role in this dominant group could explain some of the hostility behind yeah. Jesus' response. Yeah. Um, one theologian says that Jesus is caught here with his compassion down, mm. and it could be because this is someone in a dominant group that that group was known for taking advantage yes. of people with lower amounts of power. But she longs for healing for her daughter so much that she's willing to risk being shut down. And once again, we have Jesus modeling for us a way that humanity and divinity meet. It's mm -hmm. not a situation where like Jesus is this unreachable, you know, untouchable God up in heaven that just came down and, and you know, and acted in ways that we could never act. So it, we should just kind of, you know, uh, I guess we just pray to God because we, there's no hope for us. And, uh, but in this way, we see Jesus come and, you know, how many times have we been left with our compassion down? Mm -hmm. How many times when you're maybe on a social media platform have you been let with your compassion <laughs> down? And, uh, and I think that you know, seeing Jesus as, as one who has experienced the same, and then again, so quickly, when confronted with the bias of bitterness or resentment, rather than in the read that I was bringing up, we see in this Jesus not self-defend, not try to mm -hmm. uh, you know, like, uh, uh, make this all about himself and, and, and patting his ego, but rather shows us what faithfulness to the God who who truly sees that the divine image is in all. And Jesus is faithful to that, even when recognizing, even when being confronted with a situation in which he missed it at first because of his cultural situation. Yeah. And I think it's important to consider the different angles here around changing your mind or around confronting your bias, because it may be that people you've written off as being disconnected and ignorant and whatever it may be, that there might need to be some compassion shown there as well. And yes. I think that that's a lot, it can be a lot trickier to confront that within ourselves. Mm. So I guess I wanna just like wonder what you think about. These are uncomfortable ways to address uh, a scripture that I think is again, top three most uncomfortable scripture for me. So it's not often preached on. I, I, I don't know if I've ever heard a, a sermon on this, uh, this uh, message before and I've, been going to church now for, uh, I guess, 15 years. So, uh, yeah, so I, 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 but I think that, um, I think that wondering in this space with these scriptures and trying to make sense of this in a way that helps us to feel uh, that idea of like humanity and divinity meeting and seeing uh, what does it mean to be faithful to God? What, how, in what ways does Jesus model that for us? I don't know, there's something there. Um, and uh, I want to, I want to check the chat. I don't know if, uh, yeah. if there, if there's anything that, um, uh, we've noticed here. Um, let's see. Oh, uh, okay. So here's one, um, Haley, for you. Uh, Alicia um, connects this back to the story that you tell. She said, so this, the, from the read that you were just uh, doing, yeah. um, this woman could be similar to the white woman whose tears take up space. Mm -hmm. if, uh, if she's used to, um, used to being able to speak truth to power, she's bold enough to provoke Jesus. Does that feel true, or is that, uh, is, is that, is that uh, understanding correctly? I think it could be. I think um, I want to stress, because it gets mentioned a lot, that she is like fierce and feisty and whatever mm -hmm. it may be, that mm -hmm. this woman would think like, oh, I can actually call out this person for the language being used. Mm -hmm. And I actually want to stress her humility. Mm. Okay, um, yeah. That the positionality of being able to accept whatever is left over, yes. the scraps. Because she, do, she, doesn't, she doesn't quibble with the, with the dog statement. Yeah, the that maybe the initial interaction mm. came from a place of 
wanting to be listened to because that's the norm, mm. because she had more access to power. But I think that the actual, as the interaction is unfolding, this humbling of self yeah. and humi humility that has to take place for her, yeah. I think that that's important. That's really good. Too. That's really good. And then, and then Jesus responds in kind and sort mm -hmm. of like seeing the humility that I mean, we can almost take that read of like, uh, woman, you have great faith of sort of, you know, almost like woman, you have great humility. Wow. Yeah. I need to respond in kind to that. That's amazing. Yeah. And mm. that her humility inspires his humility. Yeah. As well. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Is there anything else that you want to say? I'm just kind of looking too? here, looking through here. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll look if you, if you want to, if you want to bring us uh, to uh, our next point and then uh, if there's anything else, I'll bring it in. Perfect. So I want to stress too for us that this instance of Jesus changing his mind isn't just limited to this one interaction. It has implications beyond that. And the story when it's told in uh, the book of Matthew with the reading that Vince did for us just a few moments ago, um, the story is actually situated between two different miracles of feeding large crowds. And I've mentioned this recently too, but the second feeding, the feeding of the 4,000, is even more miraculous because in his journey, Jesus was now feeding a crowd of Gentiles, a crowd of outsiders. And so when we think about this, would Jesus have responded the same way? Would this feeding have taken place if he didn't have this particular instance of changing his mind mm. in a direct conversation with the woman? Mm. Before, Jesus ignores the woman and even insults her, regardless of if her identity is someone of more power or less. But now he has compassion on a crowd that's hungry. Before, the disciples tried to send her away, but then in this instance of feeding people, Jesus says that he doesn't want to send the crowd away. Yeah. And so I can't help but think that this, they have to be related to one another, that the feeding of the 4,000 was actually Jesus living out the change of mind that he just experienced. Yes, yes, that's it great. It has direct implications there. That's really cool. And so when we, when we go through this, when we change our mind, when we repent, when we take an honest look and turn in a new direction, we have to act in ways after that that align with the new conclusions that we've come to. Mm. And I think maybe this feels self-explanatory, but we can limit changing our minds to just the cerebral experience, um, or we can doubt that us changing our mind has any real impact on anyone else. But Jesus changing his mind here led to more healing, more feeding, more teaching, and the disciples that were with him saw this progression as well. Yeah. And it's because of a woman's words. Yeah, that's really good. I think... A, a final comment that feels helpful to me as we're talking about this is um, if we're going to roll with this idea that um, Jesus, just like every other human being, expressed a bias, um, and uh, we don't have to be afraid of that, and we, we don't have to be scandalized by that, because, um, because that doesn't mean that Jesus is bad. Um, it, it, can, it can mean that Jesus might show us something about what it means to be human in a more profound way. If we're going to accept that, um, there's uh, some who, uh, who talk about, um, uh, some like in, in the counseling world who talk about uh, uh, healthy uh, moving forward and growth uh, as a human being will distinguish between guilt and shame in a particular way. And, uh, and this feels applicable to me um, as we're talking about this. So the idea is that uh, guilt is like a, a momentary feeling and, and it can be really helpful information for us. Because we, oh gosh, I just, I, I really feel guilty about that. And I, I recognize that now because I've, I've got that, that roadblock, 
uh, you know, like, oh, okay, that was, that was not a good path to go down. I'll, I'll go and find a better path. Uh, what, what, the, what is challenging is when we move, um, when, when guilt becomes compounded, we experience shame. And that's, um, shame is, is not useful. It, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't have sort of a redeeming value because it can be so burying and it can be, it, it becomes something that uh, it's no longer just the, this, this, this behavior that I, that I uh, engaged in or this choice that I made was uh, inappropriate. I'll try something else. To, it's now I am. I am inappropriate. I am bad. Mm-hmm. I am this this rotten, awful thing, and um, and that feels like a little bit like it shines light on what we see Jesus do here. And I think how that's so different from my instincts, mm-hmm. because when I'm in those situations where my biases are confronted, man, do I go to shame quickly? Like it's automatically about me, and it's and and it so quickly becomes something that I just am, I can't get myself out of it because I have to prove that I'm that guy who's thought this way since the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. And if you think differently of me, oh my gosh, what, what is made of, what is, what is true of my image? Who am I even? And Jesus shows us how to not get just trapped by that shame. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, oh, that, that, that's a moment. And I can, I, can, I can recognize, you know what? I'm not gonna go down that path again because I see better now. And I'm going to embrace this new path forward. I love that. To me, I need so much teaching on that because I'm so bad at it. And uh, there, there we are again, right? I'm so bad at it. I'm, 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 I'm literally acting it out for you in front of you all. Uh, it, this, is, this is hard. This is yeah. hard work. And I, and I see Jesus as such a breath of fresh air in that regard. Here. Well, it can be really vulnerable to admit that you didn't have the full picture, to admit yeah. that you're wrong. Um, and I think that we need more models, like when we look to Jesus, but we need more models around us that have openness around this process of coming to new conclusions. And I'd like to encourage us today too, that if you are in this process or if there's things that you're looking back on now that maybe in the moment it was really uncomfortable, but now you can see from a space of gratitude, I needed that. Mm. I needed that new vision um, to own that with your people. You may not think that you have a lot of influence, but you do. Um, and I and think sharing that, that story means a lot yeah, to other people. It opens it up for others. Exactly. Just like the humility leads to more humility in yes. the story. Yeah. Um, that your learning and expanding your vision could be what others are looking for on their own journeys. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I would love to pray for us here. Um, I'll pray for us, and then I'll close with a loving-kindness prayer, which we've done before. Um, So this just involves praying some words over yourself, over someone that brings you joy or someone you think of fondly, and then someone that you'd rather not interact with. And we see that progression in what happens with Jesus and the Canaanite woman, um, that she goes from someone that he'd rather not interact with, he'd rather shut out, but ends up having compassion on Mm. So would you pray with me? Jesus, changing and forming God, would you remind us to extend grace to ourselves and grace toward those we encounter in the process of changing our minds? And I invite you now to bring to mind something that you are longing for in this moment as we sit in the tension of growing pains and grace. 
And would you pray with me these words? May I experience compassion. May I be always changing. And may I know the presence of a God who is divine and human all at once. I invite you to bring to mind someone that you think of fondly, someone who has had a positive impact on your life. Would you bring to mind something that you are longing for for this person? And would you pray over them these words? May you experience compassion. May you be always changing. And may you know the presence of a God who is divine and human all at once. I invite you now to bring to mind someone you have a difficult relationship with. Someone you may be tempted to ignore or shut out. And I want to note for us here that if this person has caused you harm or a great deal of pain, it's okay if this doesn't feel like a possible prayer right now. That in reality and protection of yourself, it feels strange to pray for this person. That's completely valid. But if you are comfortable doing so, can you bring them to mind? Can you humanize everyone in the story, offering these words? May you experience compassion. May you be always changing. And may you know the presence of a God who is divine and human all at once. Amen.